You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabreeconference.com. Today's episode features Dick Kyes, where he discusses America's polarized politics and asks the question, can Christians have a redemptive role? Dick has been a leader of the Labrie branches in Switzerland, England, and Southborough. I've been increasingly troubled by the political polarization in this country, and particularly with the role of evangelical Protestantism within that, which has become more of a voting block than a theological designation in much public discussion. Uh, I've cast about for ideas to how to understand what's going on, I want to say, have we, have we lost the story of America? Have we lost the story of the Christian faith? How are, the, how are these going together? Where is a moral compass? I know someone like David Brooks wrote that society has, quote, become a free-form, a free-form demolition derby of moral confrontation. <laughs> you know, that's a, uh, he's absolutely right. Um, and, and just just think of the discussion, the, the, the pundits reacting to the uh, Mueller report, uh, interviews, Mueller's report, uh, interviews this last week, uh, and the complete different directions uh, people, people have come from. I remember Francis Schaeffer saying that, uh, um, speaking of democracy being a wonderful and workable form of government when there's a sufficient consensus in the population. Without that consensus in the population, it will stumble, it will grind to a halt and turn authoritarian. And I think that's almost self-evidently the case. Uh, It seems to be happening or or drifting in that direction in quite a few places already. Um, I don't think I've ever, I've sort of kept a track of history and government and so on for a long time, and I don't think I've ever uh, heard so much discussion of is democracy in danger as in the last two years. Um, you could do a zillion things uh, over what has caused this polarization, what is behind it, what are the what are the factors, and so on. I can't go there. It's, it's really interesting. It's a lot of interesting good work done. I I just don't have time. What I'm at, interested in is what can we do, us and our friends and so on who are Christians maybe to make it a little better in our little neck of the woods, uh, to lean in the right direction. So my, my basic pers- pur- purpose is really aimed at, at something quite practical. How can uh, people who believe the whole Bible in a thoughtful way speak and act a little bit better into our time? That's, that's what I'm trying to get at. Um, we'll get more specifically to it at the, at the end. Um, I'll start with the work of, a, of the same social psychologist that, uh, that Rob uh, referred to, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. 
uh, and I'm going to talk about a book that's between the two books that Rob talked about in his, in his, uh, uh, in his uh, writing career. It's called The Righteous Mind. Some of you may have run across it. Subtitle is uh, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Good title, good question. Uh, published about five years, well, published in 2013. So before the last book and, and uh, after the first book you talked about. Um, he's especially interested in looking at the sweep of human moral responses, human moral uh, convictions. Um, he is, uh, and, and so he's looking at different cultures. Uh, he is an atheist from a Jewish background, politically very much on the left, but who, and, and who embraces evolutionary psychology as his methodology. So he's not a card-carrying evangelical Christian. <laughs> and so coming from a very different place, but with a lot of very interesting insights. I know Christians are picking up on all the stuff that each of the books he's written, Christians are engaging. Tim Keller has uh, interacted with him uh, a, a couple of times. And, and um, very, very interesting guy. He, he, he sees uh, two sides of this polarization, people shouting at each other at full volume, and he has just some interesting thoughts about it. I'm not going to lean very hard on him, uh, but just um, <clears throat> to his idea of a, of a moral foundation. Um, this is somewhat like his scheme. It's not his scheme. Don't blame him for it. I'm editing it fairly substantially as we go along. Uh, but the idea of what are, what are the foundations of the different kinds of moral convictions that people have uh, about whatever, about life. And he, he describes it to tastes, uh, moral tastes. So like you go into a restaurant and you have idea of certain tastes that you're sensitive to. You like, you go to some place because you like curry. You go to some place because you like Chinese food, some place because you like sugar or whatever. Uh, and and uh, you're sensitive to certain uh, suit certain tastes in your in your in your mouth. He's saying it it can be a little bit like this that people are they relate to certain ones of these tastes of autonomy, community, divinity. Uh, again, those aren't exactly his words. He doesn't use the word divinity, but but um, under those three moral foundations, autonomy, community, divinity, he has moral conflicts under each one, which you can sort of see where he's coming from uh, in this. Five moral conflicts. Uh, care versus harm, fairness versus cheating, and then over under community, loyalty versus betrayal, authority versus subversion, and under divinity, for God or against God. That one I completely threw out his view, and I'm, I've written that one entirely myself because I'm looking at the Christian faith alone. He, is, he looks at religion in general. Uh, start on the left, autonomy. The first moral foundation, autonomy. Uh, and I'm going to just give you a bit on some of his observations about what's the shape of the, each of these, uh, or at least the first two of these pictures. Uh, the ethic of autonomy is, is the foundation that is the main moral framework in the, uh, that is dominant in the West, well-off, educated, secular societies. Autonomy, just the word means self-law, autonomos, self-law. Uh, <clears throat> it's associated with the left politically. Uh, its background is based on the view that people are autonomous individuals with desires, needs, 
and inclinations, as they have formed society, and this is key in so many uh, thinkers who've talked about this, this whole thing, as these ind free individuals have formed society, the formation of society has brought on them certain rules and inhibitions, has, cr has cramped their freedom necessarily because it's society. You've got to get along with other people. You've got to make it work somehow all, all together. Uh, society with its traditions, with its loyalties, with its religious commitments uh, uh, is apt to constrict the freedoms that are natural to us. The strong form of this would be Rousseau uh, in his famous line, man is born free but everywhere in chains. Uh, meaning a child is really free, but in no time society, the pressures of society impinge on a child and he has to behave in certain ways and, and not behave in other ways and so on. And that, that is an inhibition that which can, uh, in a constriction, can warp and derange us. Um, <clears throat> greater freedom, implica implication is greater freedom will lead to a greater flourishing for individuals and society. Uh, if here I'm talking about this on the left, on the, the, the autonomy uh, um, foundation here. If the flaws we see in ourselves come from the structures of society, for example, not from basic human nature, but from the accidents of how societies are put together, if the flaws of humanity can be attributed to, to uh, the structures of human society, it is a wonderful invitation to think, well, we can re-engineer the structures of society and make better human beings and a better society and do much better than it's ever happened before. And that's what one of the main Enlightenment uh, uh, ideas is, and it's given a great vision of how we can make it better. Um, Height's uh, leader for this on the, uh, the autonomy side is John Stuart Mill, 19th century British philosopher, uh, comes strong form as one to articulate uh, the, moral, uh, the moral autonomy foundation. And, and uh, to, to the place where he's saying, and, and Haidt is saying, that for many people, morality is all on this side, is basically exhausted by the harm, care, and fairness, cheating dynamic. And that's all that he, Haidt describes this for himself, going to Yale, University of Pennsylvania, and University of Chicago, and he it was only when he, in his postdoctoral work at the University of Chicago, that he was led to question whether there was another, there were other meaningful moral issues, uh, meaningful moral foundations, because he, he had an unchecked, unchallenged view of the of morality is is uh, under this uh, is all under the autonomy uh, framework. The, the 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 focus there, of course, is that Mill and his followers uh, see. The, the, issue, the important issues are questions of individual freedoms when it comes to economic and social fairness, uh, especially to marginalized groups, underprivileged groups. Uh, and then the main boundary to the expression of our freedom is really only that your freedom should not hurt or limit the freedom of other people. And that's basically the only limit we allow is when your freedom uh, interacts uh, destructively with someone else. Uh, again, it's care and harm, the first one under there, care especially for the innocent and the powerless, uh, the, those who are powerless to help themselves. A very basic concern is for poor and minorities, would be racial issues and so on. The, the care to prevent harm, limiting other people's rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, to medical care, to education, to economic justice. The fairness in cheating, 
um, opposition. There are two versions of it, one on the right and one on the left. I'll give you the left first. Uh, the political left, fa uh, fairness and cheating has to do with directly these social justice issues. For those who have been left out, those who have been uh, cheated, treated unfairly by the systemic function of society um, and are disempowered, they, that, uh, that cheating that or that harm is a, and, and cheating is something that we ought to be morally sensitive to and step in and, uh, and, and correct. People who don't have an equal shot at opportunity like the rest of us. Um, objections, for example, from the left for, for the recent Republican tax reform of, of uh, as they would say, the tax benefits going to the top 1%. They would say, unfair, unfair. This is really uh, illegitimate. That's the political left. On the political right is also sensitive to the autonomy uh, poll here, but they tend to see it a fairness of proportionality, proportionality, uh, meaning that the rewards of society should go proportionally to those who deserve them, not go to those who don't work, who cheat the system, who are free riders. Okay? So the right in dealing with fairness seems to, 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 to think more in terms of uh, fairness as it's deserved. I don't want my tax money given to the laziest people in society or to illegal immigrants or to free riders somehow. Fairness is in, in the fairness of proportion. And again, uh, th that, that is all under, this, uh, under the ethic of, of autonomy on, on, on the left here. Second, moving off uh, to, to the right, the ethics of community, community as a, as a moral foundation. Background here starts quite differently. It's not the, a single, uh, sort of the individual being the basic paradigm, being then influenced by society and, and misshapen by society. But the, uh, if those who are, who are in the ethics of community side, and, and Haidt uh, takes Durkheim, the French philosopher, French sociologist Durkheim is the, as his sort of uh, paradigm figure there. Um, his view is very much different. Human beings are, are intrinsically collective social creatures. That's who they are. That's the way they function. Uh, they're social creatures from the start. And they're social creatures intrinsic to human nature. So true freedom is not freedom from rules. And so true freedom is be, being in whatever state you are to function well in society, to make society work for you uh, and, for, and for others. Uh, <clears throat> He, he would be the, the Durkheim would be the spokesperson for conservatism at this point. For Haidt, he has no truck with the Republican Party today, but he looks at classical conservative thinkers back a, a, few, a couple of generations. He, he has nothing to say about the Republican Party today, but he's looking at the, the, the serious philosophical thinkers uh, uh, who've, who've, uh, uh, who've, who've laid some of the groundwork here. Um, again, very different from Mill. Uh, Durkheim, also influenced by the Enlightenment, but also, for one reason or another, brings more cer certain biblical uh, uh, ideas uh, or traditions along behind with him, though not, not a Christian. He saw the human individual, uh, again, uh, as, as, though a social creature, but basically not kind and good-hearted, but instead possessing a selfishness which makes him dangerous to the to society which he needs. Okay? So, he human beings are social creatures, but we're uh, bent in this way that we are dangerous to the very society on which we depend. Uh, 
So a very different idea of, of a paradigm of what is a human being. Um, society must be able to restrain these destructive attitudes and behaviors uh, uh, to be able to function, to be able to function well. Uh, that that uh, you must see that social institutions are strong, not at applying force, but inspiring loyalty so people want to obey the rules of society. Not that it's a police state and for, they're forced to do it, but rather that they want to, uh, to, 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 uh, uh, to live in such a way that they belong and they're willing to self-sacrifice in order to get along. They must figure out a way to get people to want to value, as he would put it, self-control over self-expression. Okay? So society must have ways to disincentivize selfishness and, and, uh, and, and encourage um, a, a community spirit. Uh, to do that, society needs to have aims and values that are higher than individual freedom and individual pleasure so that people would know that it's worth sacrificing individual freedom and individual pleasure for, uh, for uh, our, our life in society. Durkheim would say that religion is vitally important I don't, I'm not even sure he's a theist, but he sees the vital importance of religion uh, in providing some of this framework. And uh, a quote from him, which I find very, very, very uh, helpful in terms of understanding him, man cannot become attached to higher aims and submit to a rule if he sees nothing above him to which he belongs. Let me read that again. A man cannot become attached to higher aims and submit to a rule if he sees nothing above him to which he belongs. He's calling for religious meetings without which society won't hold together. Uh, without a higher, higher meaning system, he's the one that popularized the word anomie, meaning boredom, meaning disconnection. Uh, that's a French word, but it means boredom. Uh, a sense of boredom that comes from disengagement, from, uh, coming from normlessness. Very much what Rob was talking about this morning. There are there are no norms. There's nothing, to, no structure of something we can follow. Where's the meaning? Where's purpose? We don't have access to any of this, and we retreat into boredom and disengagement. It happens when society no longer has a shared moral order. What Durkheim saw in his own research resulted, in his own experience, in depression and suicide. Not his personal, but in his work, he finds depression and suicide in the lives of people who don't have a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. Uh, he coined the term moral capital, which, as I remember, Schaefer picked up and ran with a lot. Uh, not so much specifically from him, but, but looking in, in some ways at the same way. Schaefer looking at the impact of the Christian church for centuries on Western culture has left a certain structure, a certain sense of moral intuition. Uh, it, for pe in all sorts of people's lives who weren't actually confessing Christians at all, but has an impact on moral capital, and as Schaefer would say, Durkheim said, as Schaefer uh, did, did say, that's a finite quantity of moral capital. You can't just expect it to be there forever, especially as you subtract God from it. Uh, and and uh, it, it's not going to just hang around for you, but it's there, and it's a vital part in, uh, in, in holding society together. The moral foundations of community are associated with the political right more than the left, again, grounded in different assumptions, mainly that moral obligations must include, this important thing, must include the success of groups. Groups such as families, teams, companies, associations, tribes, churches, nations, are much more than just the sum of the individuals that make, up, make them up. Groups are entities in themselves 
which are held together only by common community moral obligations. Hard to hold groups together. One, one of the things sociologists are struggling to put together is how does uh, how do non-kinship bonds happen? Kinship bonds are dead easy to see. Families, you're dependent on a family and you have connections within the family. How do you get bonds between people who aren't family? How do you create it? Where, do they, where does it come from? How can we generate this to get them to hold society together in ways that, that we need to hold it together? Uh, the existence and vitality, this is a big point Haidt makes, and, and certainly Durkheim's big, very big on this, the existence of these groups needs more than the, than the foundations, uh, moral foundations of autonomy. You need more than concern for care and harm, fairness and cheating uh, to, to hold uh, uh, groups together. Uh, they need social structure and moral values that encourage belonging. It's a good thing. I think there's a lot of very interesting stuff here that we need to really uh, track on and view. We need moral frameworks that, that encourage belonging and reward belonging and make you want to belong. Uh, so there would be a moral, uh, there'd be moral opposition going down here on the, on the community uh, of, of loyalty versus betrayal. Obviously, loyalty is a belonging. Uh, pulling together betrayal is a, is a breaking of, of community. Uh, loyalty holding together smaller groups. Uh, the way he does it, loyalty betrayal, it refers to the sort of the organization of smaller groups, like marriage, family, a team, a coalition, a company, uh, all sorts of non-kinship bonds. If you don't have loyalty, then many groups will just come unglued, will fall apart. Society then as a whole will be deeply harmed, which I think we can see this around us also in sorts of different ways. It can require giving up of one's self-desires in order to serve the group. Disloyalty, betrayal, treachery is seen as morally bad, evil, and maybe worthy of punishment in the way societies are structured. Uh, then there's the, the moral opposition of authority versus subversion. This is the second one under community. This is similar to loyalty versus betrayal, but, but is in wider categories of wider groups to cover the ethics and the needs of larger groups like nations, cities, armies, and so on, much larger groups. He sees a different category. If a nation or any large political institution is to hold together, there must be a willingness to accept and obey certain customs, rules, and have respect and willingness to follow them and sacrifice for the common good in following them. It has to be the ethical, the moral uh, investment in being willing to do that, not being just forced to do it, but to do it. This is true of all sorts of groups. And I think we, maybe in America, we're sometimes a bit naive about um, the rest of the world and how things work. I, I got a, a, a shock, I must say, uh, having spent a lot of time in Switzerland uh, because of Libri, uh, my cousin was I'm managing the software of a large computer company there some years ago in Geneva. And he hired a lot of Americans. He hired an American couple. They had a wonderful apartment in, a, in, a, in an apartment building in Geneva. Nice view, balcony, looking out. Uh, and they hung their laundry on the balcony. Uh, they had a note stuck under their door the next day. Uh, we don't hang laundry uh, on the balconies here. So don't do it. He says, whatever. I mean, a typical American response, what in the world? That somebody's uptight, we pay no attention. <laughs> the next day there was a, that they hung on clothes, there was another note under their door. They stopped doing it for a little while, but then restarted it by, by the next week. The third note, 
I think was, if I'm right, was hand-delivered. It was said, your permit to work in Switzerland has been revoked. You have one week to leave the country. <laughs> this is Switzerland. Happy, pretty Switzerland, nice Alps, friend, friendly people. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you want to stay here? You have to play the game. If you're not going to play the game, we really don't want you here. And of course, they said it was working for a big and important computer company. Uh, they said, well, we'll fix it. We'll go and talk to people. No, they tried. They went as high as it, because going up the government chain of command in Switzerland is a challenge, because uh, it's structured very, kind of, uh, in a way that doesn't make that easy. Uh, and uh, they said, of course, we're, in, we're important Americans and influential and so on. We can fix it. They couldn't. They tried it. And, no, they had to leave. They were out within a week. Uh, now, it's an example of communities having rules. We set rules because we want people to behave in a certain way. People outside of that, we don't need them. Uh, but that, that's a community ethical uh, reality, which anyone's free to do. It's interesting because up on the mountains, everybody hangs everything on the on the balcony. You've been, if you've been to Switzerland, everything, all the bedclothes gets out, get hung over the edge of the balcony uh, to air out during the day. But not in Geneva. Anyway. Uh, higher levels of this are, are uh, the nations require patriotism for a nation to last. It must have enough loyalty for people to willingly pay taxes, uh, to be committed uh, even to the point of being willing to die uh, for, for a country in military service. Um, the opposite of patriotism is treason, which is published, punished with great uh, severity. Now, uh, uh, it, it's interesting to think of the distinction between moral principles grounded in community and moral principles grounded in autonomy. I'll give you a thought experiment. Um, what do you think of using an American flag to wipe up something you spilled on the floor? Is that a moral issue? I'm asking you. Any, anyone have a thought about it? Using the American flag, you spill some, something rather on the floor. You don't have a handy dog to clean it up. Uh, do you use the American flag to mop it up or not? Or, or is that a, if you do, is that a moral issue? I'm seeing nods. No, I'm seeing hands being, heads being shaken. What? Yeah, but is that a, does that make it a moral issue or does that not make it a moral issue? Can we split moral from appropriate? Right, like yeah, the two can overlap each other, obviously. What what what? makes you think of appropriateness will be influenced by morality, perhaps. But uh, all I'm saying, uh, there's not a right or wrong answer to this. Uh, all I'm saying is that if you thought it was morally wrong in any sense, you were feeling your community moral foundation. You're feeling your need for, we're standing together here. Uh, that means respect at a certain level that we need to even respect this symbol, uh, as opposed to being willing to pay taxes or do military service or whatever. Um, but, but the important thing is you see that mopping up the, the floor with an American flag does not cheat anybody, does not harm anybody. Doesn't, it, you, you, it doesn't, the autonomy thing, uh, moral framework doesn't engage it. Uh, it's very much in, under the community uh, setting. So I'm just trying to say that these are separate moral inclinations, separate moral tastes, as it were, uh, that that, um, uh, that have to be treated separately. I, I, I think of the, the best known phrase of John Kennedy, 
uh, even though he was on the left, this is, he is very much on, on, under the community, saying, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Straight community uh, moral appeal. Um, putting self-interest aside and, and serve your country because it's worth serving, because, it's, you, because of what patriotism you may have. Okay, moving off to the right still more, morality of divinity. Very, very powerful moral obligations are rooted in religious views of reality. Uh, I'll give you my own take here, not at all what Jonathan Haidt is doing. Um, uh, the opposition is here is for or against the biblical God. I'm making this in a complete Christian framework, not in a generic religious framework. Um, there's more to morality than just harm and fairness, and there's also more to morality than just think straight community demands. Uh, God is in the midst of this. Uh, it's for or against the biblical God. Um, God is personal, created us in his image and likeness. Uh, we would, uh, that we would know him and image him. Uh, what is for God is believing and trusting in him, obeying him, treating him as Lord. This means valuing the things he values, the creation as he values it. Especially, most of the ethics in the Bible are how you treat other human beings. Most of the, and this has a huge amount here. Human beings made in his image. Uh, he tells us the way he would have us live and have us treat each other. Uh, but as we, as we think about this, the, the ethics of divinity cast all, back across all the other issues under autonomy and community. It's not divinity, morality, morality divinity doesn't stay put on the right side of our diagram here. Uh, I mean, you just look at the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal, that they are, in, that they are endowed with that creator with inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of, uh, of, of happiness. Those are, that's totally, those, those rights of that equality is totally grounded in divinity, in a God being there who decrees that we're equal with each other, who says we have these rights. And, and everything that we would see under uh, under the autonomy uh, uh, foundation of, of, care, of care and harm, fairness and cheating is informed in modern America by this idea of us being made equal, uh, which is, which is uh, nonsense if there's no God in whose sight we're equal. Because I think I was saying this before uh, the other day, that there's no measurable way, there's nothing you can measure that shows us to be equal. Uh, this is a very counter-observation idea that Jefferson put in here and the others signed to, that we are created, we are actually equal, but equal only because we're in the sight of God. So equal in the sight of God. So here's something from divinity that, that conditions very much how people think of, of everything on the autonomy side. Um, equal rights are the basis for liberal democracy, and it comes from the valuation of God. People were not an accident. They were created by God and endowed with these rights. Um, <clears throat> What God is against is denying his authority, his will, his lordship, rejecting his love for us. This is sin. This is disobedience to God. It takes the place not, not only in religious areas, but it takes, a, takes place across the whole perspective of moral issues, whether they be political, economic, uh, local, social, whatever. Uh, God has something to say about how we live and behave uh, under each of these uh, foundations. And, and again, an enormous amount of, of sin in the Bible has to do with devaluing people, treating people like dirt uh, in some way or another. 
Who are we? We're children of God, adopted into God's family, and we're meant to live that way. We're meant to live as God's children. Live as God with God as our Father. Live treating our fellow uh, siblings, human beings, men and women, well. Our bodies are not playgrounds, but are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our possessions are not ours, but belong to God, and they are on temporary loan to us. Everything we own is going to be given back to, uh, to, to God uh, when we die. Uh, we love, we're here to love our neighbors with the level of commitment that we have for ourselves. Not just love them a bit, up to a point, but love others as, as we love ourselves. Uh, okay, I'm going, let me just go back here to, to our outline. Um, examples of polarization. I'm just going to just, uh, this, I've talked about the, the sort of scope of, of, uh, of moral frameworks just to give you a sense of what it, the, the diversity of some of the things we're dealing with. Uh, pre- predictable collisions that come as a result of this take sexual ethics. If you only think in terms of the ethics of autonomy, uh, why in the world not have sex between consenting partners? What in the world is there against it? Is anybody cheated? Is anybody hurt to your best of your definition of hurt? Uh, you can, you can be, be free from, from sexual inhibition. Give kids condoms to prevent them from harm of STDs and keep them from unwanted pregnancies. There's no harm or fairness that is done to you if you have safe consensual sex, at least to your definition of harm. Uh, what, could, what could be wrong with that? If the human body is basically a playground to be enjoyed, there's nothing, and there's nothing sacred about it, they're, they're right. We, there's, not, there's not much argument if, if your only ethics come from the autonomy side. Um, but if you recognize that there are moral obligations of community and divinity, there are whole, other whole areas of moral reality that impinge on sexual behavior. Uh, institutions are at risk, marriage and family are at risk, as well as consequences of long-term consequences rather that you're, uh, you may not be likely to consider, like welfare of children and so forth. Um, so just to, the, the, uh, I'm trying to build an idea of why there's such non-communication over disagreement here, this difference in, in very basic philosophical grounding for where, where these ideas come from. An intriguing... Uh, Political scientist from Notre Dame, a guy called Patrick Deneen, maybe some of you have run into him, wrote this last, this, just this year, a book called Why Liberalism Failed. It's not a very, it's a misleading title, given what the book is actually about, because it's not just a critique of liberalism as it's understood. Um, he blames, because he blames both right and left for grasping for autonomy. Think of how Rob has used the word autonomy in the last lecture. Uh, autonomy being, I am uh, self-law, I am the center. Uh, nobody telling me what to do. Nobody uh, 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 as, as a lawgiver. His view is that, uh, and I think he's right, the two major institutions, institutions with a sort of a, a, a in, in, in uh, quotation marks, that, are, that really matter most more than anything in our society are the state and the market. Two biggest and main, the main players in our culture. Uh, he says the left wants complete freedom for the state so they can have the power to do what they want to do to fix what they think is wrong with the state, to fix the ills and injustices of society. The state wants free, the left wants freedom for the state to, to fix what they see is wrong. The right want, wants complete freedom for the market to bring unfettered economic growth, which will also bring prosperity and blessing, so on, to the rest of society. Both see themselves as saviors 
from the evils inflicted by the other. So this gives you, this is why this polarization is really uh, is really uh, uh, powerful. The left fears greed most and sees the state as the only protection against the predations and inequalities produced by the free market. The right fears most laziness and sees the market as the only protection from the misguided social and economic engineering of the left and the strangulation of the government all nanny. So they each see each other as enemies and, and, but as saviors of what the other one is doing. And no wonder this polarization insofar as they're, they're grounded in either of these things. Uh, in fact, Deneen says both state and market are both destroying local institutions, associations, loyalties that get in their way. Which local institutions and loyalties are alone equipped to educate people in civil and moral life? The state and the market are completely incapable of really being the moral educators of our population. And I think that, that to me, is a, is a sober insight, which I think is there's some real truth to that. He, tr- he charts the, the destruction of institutions, associations, or whatever, uh, that it's rolled under and replaced by the state or the market or whatever. Uh, his ideas are interesting. I mean, they're very, I put them very absolutely. There's all sorts of... Uh, uh, Sort of exceptions and so on, but, but um, it gives you a sense of why polarization. Now I want to talk about, this is really the most important part of what I'm doing, is uh, about biblical morality. And I'm starting, for lack of any other place, with the Ten Commandments, uh, because it's, there's a logical reason for that. Um, as, as a foundation. Uh, notice that as you read the Ten Commandments, they're not just a list of things given do's and don'ts for the individual. They're oriented toward how you're going to live together and be families and be neighbors and make it work in this new land that God is giving you. The Ten Commandments are very, very social. I'll just review them quickly for you. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make, your, make yourself an idol. You shall not take God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother and you'll live longer. Uh, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet, covet your neighbor's house, wife, servant's property, anything. Let's reflect on those now. I'm taking a very quick trip through. Um, the first three commandments deal directly with what we've called the, 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 the moral foundation of divinity. This is about who God is. I've just brought you out of slavery. Keeping these laws will enable you to, go, to not go back into slavery. The Ten Commandments are given as a text, as a, as a um, how, to keep, how to keep this freedom that I've given you. Because I heard your cries in Egypt as, as slaves. I brought you out. This is how you keep that and build something constructive that will stay uh, and, and, and uh, be something you can keep and, and maintain your sovereignty as a nation and so on. Um, and and the, 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 these first three commandments get God's right and everything else will hinge on it. Um, you, God brought you out of Egypt. You didn't make him. He made you. So don't you make phony gods out of wood or stone out of, or out of your imagination and pretend they're divine. 
Uh, and don't mess with God's name. Don't use it as if it was an empty word for blasphemy or punctuation. Most swearing is just using the name of God, Christ, God, for punctuation. When we're short on imagination for saying, for bringing emphasis, we want to emphasize some statement, we use the word God, Christ, or whatever. Uh, and, and I think it's a call for more imagination in our, in our uh, vocabulary. Uh, to, to not use the word of God just to ramp up your, ramp up your exclamation points or whatever uh, in your speech. Um, but but uh, God, God's name is sacred. It's interesting to me that the first petition in the Lord's Prayer is, Hallowed be thy name. Same deal. The name of God. Make the name of God separate. And I think this, what this is bringing into is this whole idea of, of moral capital, of respect, deep respect for something that is your real framework of meaning. And if you junk the language, if you trash the language, you will disrespect it. Think of how in every war we've fought, we think of racial and national slurs for the names of the people we're fighting against. So we use words to describe them as trash, as useless, or whatever. You can go through all our wars and find out how we, and think of we, language is part of our devaluation. Uh, well, God is getting onto this uh, too and guarding, guarding against it. Uh, our language is much more important than we imagine. God's lordship can only be expressed in language. You can't express the lordship of God with pictures. Can't do it. Pictures won't communicate it. You need words. You need language. Language that you take seriously. Language that is heavy in its meaning and its, its gravity. I think it's important because through his word, his word stands over all of these moral foundations. All our actions and loyalties and traditions. Uh, and sometimes his word stands against our traditions and loyalties. Uh, Christians should never just embrace tradition or loyalty because sometimes traditions and loyalties can, can defend horrendous evils under, uh, under a, a, a veneer of respectability. The left, interesting here, I'd like to go back to our... Uh, there we are. Um, to our uh, moral foundations, uh, the left is, actually, is apt to resist the ethics of community because they see in that loyalties and traditions that are espoused by the right that back up and, and sustain immoral practices and traditions. Moral practices, loyalties that block freedom, for example, that resist efforts to bring justice and needed reform. Slavery was a, a deep tradition that took a long time and a lot of blood to get rid of, uh, and all the assumptions of race and so on that were behind slavery. So the left looks at that and says, don't trust traditions. Uh, we, we be suspicious of tradition, and there's something really right in that. But and because loyalty can to one's race or one's nation can become racism, can become nationalism, and can become a war, uh, and all sorts of prejudices attached to them. What I'm saying, sexism was and still can be a uh, a, a tradition, even even in the Christian Church. Uh, Roman Catholic Church got tradition on loyalty wrong in the sex abuse scandal with their apparent loyalty to the priesthood uh, over loyalty of the children in the congregations. But it was loyalty there, and, and it's good to be loyal to the priesthood, but they got the balance wrong 
of, 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 of uh, comparative loyalties. So loyalties to tr- and traditions are necessary to be faithful to God. We need them. But they're very dangerous when we get them wrong. And we don't let them stand under the word of God. They need to stand under the word of God, not, not sort of stand aside beside the word of God as, as equal authority because they're so rich, deep in our history. Um, loyalties are necessary, but very dangerous when they become our moral capital when they're wrong. Think of Jesus' own statement. He says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So, so don't take traditions as being sacred because they're just because they're traditions. Uh, they, the traditions have to be examined. Martin Luther King used God's word against deep traditions of race to bring reform. We need to be totally committed to letting God's word establish our loyalties and traditions and also let his word reject them. Remember Schaefer saying there's two ways to destroy the Bible. One is to subtract from it and the other is to add your own traditions and rules to it that reach the same authority uh, of the Bible. And that's actually a more effective way of destroying the Bible because nobody notices it. If you attack the Bible, people notice. They say, oh, we'll defend the Bible. But if we add all sorts of rules and regulations coming out of our own tradition uh, and that seem to make sense uh, uh, to us, uh, nobody notices. And, and yet they will do enormous damage over a period of time. The whole sacred secular thing I did yesterday is a, loaded with traditions of, of legalism and things that we must do and must not do that are not in the Bible, but it's loaded down and crushed with, with, loyal, with loyalties and traditions that, that have no business being there. Uh, okay, moving on. Uh, the Sabbath uh, has a vast amount to say about how you work, <coughs> what your attitude to work is, how you treat other people working with you, and your time. How you care for yourself, your family, your neighbors, your animals, and your land. So the Sabbath deals with all three of these, all three of these uh, moral foundations. Honor your father and mother. And the, prohi- and the prohibition of adultery deal with the sacredness of family, marriage, and the human body. The left is apt to, as I said, be very nervous and even resist things about loyalty to the family or met to marriage. Since marriage, we take it seriously, restricts sexual freedom. Uh, if God's, uh, and, and, and it's meant to, uh, they don't like that. So you see a lot of cynicism about marriage, on doing marriage, not, certainly not all non-Christians at all, but many uh, would want to, under, would want to uh, really cast doubt <coughs> on it as being simply a, 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 a social invention and so we can change it anytime we find it's not functioning the way we want. Uh, God puts a huge emphasis on loyalty to the family, but the family is not God. The family is under God. Uh, the family is the most basic uh, institution of society, a necessary building block for society, vitally important. Society can't hold without the family holding together, but it is not God. And it's interesting to me that, that Jesus, in some of his parables, one of the main temptations of idolatry is that the family can take you away. Oh no! Can't come to the banquet because I've got to. I've just got married, right? This, that, and the other thing. Got to go marry, bury somebody, rather. It's family temptation. Jesus saw the temptation of family loyalty as a big temptation in terms of those who would follow him. Commandments against murder and stealing are against the ultimate violation in harm and unfairness. And this is important to see. These uh, these commandments against murder and stealing. put Christian morality squarely on the left side under autonomy. The ultimate violations of care, of, of, of care 
and of fairness are involved in these two, in these two uh, commandments. We can't just say, oh, that's, that belongs to the left. Uh, that's not ours. This is right there in the Bible, and the, these are the extreme uh, breaking of those rules. Take away someone's life or what rightly belongs to them, and you've really, uh, you've really uh, offended God. This connects, again, connects Christian morality solidly with the autonomy foundation, which, of course, you have these two commandments, but then you have the vast resources of the prophets. Uh, you look at the, where the prophets are standing, and they are hammering on this. They, are, uh, they drove home with anguish and rage the violations of, of, of uh, stealing and, and, taking, and, and murder and taking human life. Uh, Think of how the prophets judged society. It was according to how the poor, the well, yeah, it was according to how the poor and the disadvantaged and disempowered were treated. As they looked to a nation, they didn't check and see how the rich and powerful were getting on. Not because God doesn't value the rich and the powerful, but the rich and powerful have ways of getting on. Uh, if somebody messes them around, they have ways of, of getting back. It's the people who are disempowered, who are treated badly, but uh, who have no way of getting back. So the prophets look for who? The widow, the orphan, the fatherless, the sojourner, the refugee. That's how the prophets measure the righteousness of society, whether the society really cares for what God thinks or, or just is function for, functioning for their own interests. Think of the Jeremiah 22, uh, writing about Jeremiah's writing about the good king, uh, Josiah. He judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well. Is not this to know me? This is the depth of that statement is something. To know God is to give fairness and justice to the poor and the needy. Uh, you've got a question of whether you know God or not if, if justice is not being done to the poor and the needy. Where there's no justice uh, there, there's no knowledge of God. Um, and this matches Jesus' teaching as well. That, uh, and in the New Testament letters, Jesus' words that are just so, I, I can't get my head around what this would actually mean if I actually lived it out. As you treat the least of these, my brethren, so you treat me. The most impoverished, disconnected, helpless, unattractive Christian you can find, how you treat that person is how you're treating Jesus. What does that mean? Where does that leave us? God help us, we need a Savior. But that's, that's meant to be taken seriously. The early church, much of the early church, really did take that seriously in hospitality, high level hospitality. Homes open, bringing people in, letting them stay. But this is this is Jesus, just speaking the the message of the prophets again, coming right out of the out of the commandments. Um, finally, false witness, lifting up the sacredness of truth and truth telling, absolutely necessary for a society to hold together. It needs to be a certain level of trust for society to work. Um, otherwise, you have just individuals uh, uh, fighting for their own interests. Uh, tell the truth to each other as we stand before God. Lying is not just some, something mischievous or naughty. It destroys the fabric of society and, and brings with it betrayal and, and cheating, uh, which further undoes society. Uh, someone who lies uh, can't be trusted and so destroys the community and is a terrible neighbor. Finally, the Tenth Commandment is against coveting. Here again, this both has to do with our standing before God and our social uh, relationships. If I covet, that means what God has given me is somehow not enough. I want what he has or she has. I want more than what he has. So it's this, there's a lack of peace with God 
if, if we're coveting. But it's also a terrible scourge in the social reality that surrounds us. Um, with the jealousy and envy of coveting, when, when that gets loose and does its work in society, it's deeply destructive. So there's a warning here. Uh, it, it, it has quite a list of long things that we should not covet. It's just about everything. It's don't covet your neighbor's wife, house, land, manservant, maidservant, ox, donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Nothing. You're not allowed to covet anything. Uh, which is it's, it's intriguing to me how he lays on one thing after another and after another to cover it. Make sure there's no exception allowed here for, you, for your coveting. And then I think you know, I don't see developed very much, which I think is so important. To not covet, to be able to not covet, is a marvelous freedom. It's a marvelous blessing. Uh, because it means that you're free to enjoy investing in the success of your neighbor. Imagine enjoying investing in the success of your neighbor. Whoa. Uh, I remember someone, uh, actually Martin Lloyd-Jones, some of you probably read across him in his preaching. He looked at Romans 12, where it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. That's what you're be able to do here. But he said, that's, that, that's amazing for us, because our human tendency is to do exactly the reverse. Uh, to, 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 to rejoice with no... With, when others weep and to, and to weep when others rejoice because each time that makes us look better by comparison because we're always juggling comparisons with each other uh, and, but what a joy it is to be able to rejoice with full rejoicing with, with others rejoice and, and to weep with real grievance you know, blessed are those who mourn uh, with those who weep uh, not coveting has a huge role also in building and protecting community being a neighbor uh, the, and, and the expression of love it's intriguing to me that the Ten Commandments covers the whole moral range of, of, of moral foundations. God is in there on all of them uh, and, and informing us how to, to see all of them and structure all of them uh, in ways that are redemptive. Um, I don't want to go on without footnoting something that doesn't appear in the Ten Commandments, but it's very, very real in there, is, which, is, which is Genesis 1 and 2 would commit us to, and many other things in the Bible, to creation care. Uh, Adam and Eve are stewards of the rest of creation. Um, and, and we're committed to doing creation care, taking care of God's world in its diversity. Uh, that means they're responsible for caring for it, for uh, the garden, for the animal world, and the rest of creation as well. And that's, that's got to be seen in our whole picture also. Okay, what are we... At, at, uh, my last thing is what if <laughs> um, and by that I mean what if we ask ourselves three questions uh, is there any way that we as Christians could help redraw some of these lines if we are faithful to the and my, as you can tell my, my argument is the full range of God's truth the full range of God's moral foundations not just the ones that, we're that are convenient for us. Uh, what if we ask ourselves three questions? Um, as evangelical Christians, we're meant to believe the whole Bible. And can we challenge ourselves and ask ourselves, do I have it right? Do I, have I done justice to the whole thing? Have I tracked on what I'm familiar with, what I've grown up with, or whatever what my friends hold to? Have I done justice to the full range of, uh, of biblical morality? Have I been 
Is there a possibility that I may have been wrong at some place as I look at the full breadth uh, of, of the picture? I'm not cherry picking what ones we like. Uh, could my political views not match the Bible in every place? Might I need to adjust? Uh, you see, I don't trust the right or the left implicitly. Uh, if we lean to the left, we have to ask, where are we on pro-life issues of ethics at the beginning and the end of life? Where are we on the status of marriage, on religious freedom, and all, we could go on. If we lean to the right, lean to the right, where are we on the prophet's method that I've just talked about, the care for the poor, the care for the disemp- disempowered? Uh, where are we on creation care? The right is, seems, I think, quite weak on creation care. Uh, that would mean caring for a lot of different things. Uh, and I'll just caring for social and racial and economic justice, as well as creation care. Of our medical care for everyone around, as well as a strong criminal justice system, fiscal responsibility. Do you remember that? Hearing about fiscal responsibility? That's a moral concern as well. Um, education, respect for marriage, family, the unborn, the very old, all the people in between, respect for religious freedom. Uh, it would mean challenging uh, greed and also laziness, both as serious problems. Why shouldn't we challenge both? Uh, this would not mean, if we did that, this would not mean that all Christians would be clones. God doesn't like clones. But I think it would mean that Christians would be pulled in from the extremes of both right and left. A little bit closer to the middle. And also have a little bit more sympathy with the other side. And that's, that's my goal. Here. And that's, I think, all we can realistically hope for in what I've been trying to say. I think it should pull us in and the extremes of both that are, that are extreme because they exclude all sorts of stuff that God wants us to, want, to really look at. Uh, the second question, because uh, it's tied up to this, what if we could resist getting packaged? We are forced into packages. and I don't like that. Uh, I don't like being put in packages, in a, in a package. Uh, the, party, the present party system, if we toe the line of our party, whatever that may be, uh, that will put us in a package, or is liable to put, put us in a package. Um, I, uh, the present political climate, I don't fit. I don't have a home. I am pro-life, but I'm also very much pro-environmental care. Uh, uh, pro-life puts me with conservatives. They're all friendly. They think, yes, yes. Uh, the minute I talk about uh, uh, care for God's creation, they get very nervous about my about about having me around. I'm not really one of them, uh, and and uh, so so I, I'm out of there. If I'm an environmentalist, as I speak of, of the environment, the liberals like me, uh, the conservatives don't. But 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 uh, and it's the other way around. Um, if if I'm if I'm in, uh, well, you, you see the, the, the two sides to that. Being liked is not the point. But I don't like being pressed to embrace a package that I don't really want to be part of. Now, that, that questions our role within the political parties as they stand. Um, uh, but I can't be, be part of the package. Um, we need to separate issues from each other and look at issues that really need to be evaluated uh, each other. One of the, I think maybe one of the more important things, applications of Francis Schaeffer's teaching today is his teaching on you can be co-belligerents 
with almost anybody on a certain issue without having to be an ally with them, without standing with them everywhere. He would even tell stories of being in an argument. It must have been a long must have been in the 40s, uh, 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 over the Spanish Civil War with a, with a Marxist and a fascist. And he agreed with the Marxists sometimes, and he agreed with the fascists at other times. And both of them hated his guts, and he thought he seriously questioned his safety at a certain point in this conversation. Uh, because as he went one way and the other, back and forth. But he, he said, I have to. I can't agree with either one of them everywhere. But he saw something to agree with each of them. Uh, but we need to be able to be co-belligerents and not just be expressions of our political party uncritically. And we have to be, I don't know, that, that, that raises also the questions about what we do, but we, there's a lot of ways of exerting our, our political influence without having it through, par, through, through parties. Uh, and there's also ways of influence into influencing what our party is doing. I mean, views of a party are made up of, of people uh, structuring them. Uh, the third question, what if we, we were committed to civility and kindness in all our political discussion? The Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Uh, our tone can make mutual understanding and persuasiveness either a possibility or an instant impossibility, depending on how we use words. Uh, surely this is a, a place we can start and, and uh, as we look for as we look for what what can we agree with together? How can we how can we uh, do this? I'll be doing talking this afternoon about conflict and conflict resolution. There's a lot we can learn from the Bible here too. Okay, uh, getting to the end here. I've always been challenged by a passage in Joshua five. Joshua is about to attack Jericho and begin the whole conquest of Canaan. It says this, it says, He looked up and saw a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you one of us or our adversaries, or one of our adversaries? And he replied, No, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. Joshua fell on his face and asked what he was to do with the man. To him, yes, get your sandals off your feet, you're standing on holy ground. Now, I like that. I, I think we need to stand and be quiet before that uh, and, and see where God is before that. Joshua is about to have a war, uh, a war that's actually commanded by God. Uh, but he's, uh, he's immediately just, okay, whose side do you want? I'm going to fight you now. Uh, and I, I'm going to divide it up now. Are you with me or against me? Tell me right now. Uh, maybe this isn't, shouldn't be so important to us. We who are hopefully not about to start wars in our discussion with our neighbors and friends. Uh, but rather, uh, to be on God's side is to, is to at least stand on the full counsel of God. On the full, I've gone into the Jonathan Hyde thing to, and, and, and this, the different moral categories to just say, to just try and emphasize the Bible is there. The Bible is there on all of these. The Bible is, is, is uh, speaking meaningfully to the full range of human moral sensibility and conviction. So, I'll end up there, and I think I've got some time at least for some, for some discussion. Over to you all. Yes? I agree completely that, 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 that I don't want, I don't fit anywhere. I don't feel like I fit anywhere. Uh, there are faults on either side, 
And we seem to be at a point in society where the best any either side can manage is a plurality or a very thin majority. And it seems that then the temptation is to double down and oppress the other side whenever you manage to gain power. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be kind of an element of force involved on either side, which isn't working. It's only making things worse. In the next cycle, there's a backlash and things mm-hmm. back and forth. And even on issues of uh, economic equality, the, the, the prophets spoke out, but they always spoke out to voluntarily do the right thing. It's never a matter of force. It's never a matter of do the right thing or you will be persuaded by the government. Uh, there is, there is... You might be persuaded by foreign governments invading and trashing you. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but it seems... It, 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 at some level, I'm, I'm discouraged with the political process because it, it comes down to, to, to force rather than persuasion. And I can see a situation where, like Dr. Schaefer, you could, you could engage in a political discussion, make everybody angry, and find, and at the same time find reasons to agree with both sides. Uh, but at the end, what do you do? I am not a standard, and so I, I do not engage in that conversation the same way. As I look at the political process, I could step out and say, I don't agree, I don't identify with either side, I can make moral arguments, but I have to vote. And some people are called to engage more actively in the political process. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do we do this uh, to, to, to be true to our conscience, to be peaceful in our engagement, and, and yet not abdicate our responsibility as, as citizens? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? My goodness. Uh, I guess I'm, I, I haven't gotten, in, in, at least in this talk, to, to, to the, the practicalities of actually what do we do. But to say, let's start at least with a with a full range of issues that we ought to be care about as we form the form what we do want, what we would where where we would lean, where we want to move things. Uh, and then, you know, I, I think uh, there's all sorts of ways, all sorts of associations and institutions that are not political parties that are that are that are uh, applying pressure on the political process. And uh, if we can't. I think we can be part of a political party, great, and, and, and have as much influence as we can from within it, uh, at least at a local level. Uh, but but uh, if we can't, um, I think there's there's uh, you know there's, there's, there's all sorts of ways that all sorts of associations that we can connect with that are trying to influence, that are lobbying, that are raising money for this or putting. I mean, my daughter-in-law's. Uh, just had a, 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 a done, done a lot to change the um, whether you can drill have offshore drilling off the coast of Georgia because of the organization she started and she's working and she's influenced the governor and so on and it doesn't it's not she's not working with a political party uh, she's happy to work with Republicans and Democrats the governor's Republican uh, and she's happy to work with him uh, but but. Uh, we, 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 uh, I think that the parties are so squaring off against each other that we are blind to how we can work without joining. But, but uh, we need to vote, as you said, and vote, voting is going to commit us to political to one political party or the other. And so I think we can, we as much as we can, 
uh, we, we can uh, be involved in, in the political parties, which where it's available. And that's totally different from different people at different places. And I, I would not, I'm very inarticulate in being able, to, being able to say, this is what you should do, because there's all sorts of room to, uh, to it. Maybe some of you have been involved more politically and can give some help to how we, how we, how an alienated person can, can uh, function here fruitfully. Uh, or or not or okay any yes uh, yes yeah, so I'm uh, I'm interested nervous kind of about how this concept of moral capital or moral currency especially kind of within the church because I think that's seen in two very distinct ways I'm just talking just within the church much less outside of it I think one group sees this as uh, maybe let's even take our nation, like the foundations our nation was founded upon. They may say, well, it may not be very Jesus-y, you know, it may not, it may not be incredibly biblically detailed, but that heritage is incredibly important for keeping our society together, and because it has a biblical foundation, it's, it's good, and we should celebrate that. But I think another group very rightly says that that is very sinister in a lot of ways because it's always utilitarian. And that idea of moral uh, currency is selective and it's used by whatever group is looking for it to benefit themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's used, and, and, it, and not only that, but it's used to take a moral high ground and be pharisaical and to feel like, you know, your position or, or whatever it is you're advocating for is then Christianized. Yeah. And, you know, the first group will say, well, it may not be exactly biblical, but it's better than being, you know, the Soviet Union in the 70s. It's better than being all these other places in the world. Mm-hmm. But the second group, and it tends to be a younger group, not always, but to just say, yeah, but it's even more sinister to, to claim a moral high ground when it's not comprehensively biblical. Mm-hmm. It's getting further away from Jesus-y language, more of a deistic kind of goodness, mm-hmm. and therefore it's even more sinister than the first. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot. Wow, there's a lot of things that I don't won't have time to get. At. I believe I, I'm a believer in the First Amendment. Uh-huh. Okay, which means we're not trying to get Jesus into the political system. Right. Right. And I, I think there's a great respect for the First Amendment, that, that there's no establishment, federal law establishing any religious tradition, and this free exercise thereof. Yeah, so, I don't want to advocate for putting Jesus himself in the government. I'm just saying it's, 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 it's moral language further and further, in some people's minds, away from biblical Christianity in a way that in a way that feels self-justifying and pharisaical, but doesn't speak comprehensively to mm. the moral issues of our day. Yeah, I guess uh, my own sense in, in of a Christian vision, which I think is really the same as the as the, uh, the original founders in, in having the uh, uh, in, in writing the First Amendment, is that um, we're th- this is a constitution and a whole setup for a pluralistic society. I came from Massachusetts, and they they were setting up a congregational society. You had to be a member in good standing of the congregational church to vote in town meeting. Uh, 
And what happens there? You corrupt the church because everybody fakes their testimony and resents it. The church collapses as a result very fast before the 17th century is half over. The church has major problems to do with uh, the alliance of church and state in, in, in that way. Uh, I, th- I think the, first, the declaration is not church and state, it's God and state as the ultimate assumption of what we're working on. A God that deists and Christians could both believe in. Uh, it's not bi- biblical truth. Now we've got, and, and you add that to the, the First Amendment, which says we've got to keep explicit religion out of the uh, out of the process, but make all sorts of room for it to be active within it. We've got to work out, okay, what does that mean? Well, one way to come at this, okay, is how do we distinguish a sin from a crime? Right. Okay. In other words, what, in terms of what we believe, what should be backed by the coercive power of the law? And that's where people are terrified of what Christians are likely or would do if they got more and more power. And I agree with some of their terror, given the way some Christians speak, that we will stuff as much of our faith as we have the power to do down the collective pluralistic throat. And I think that's it's unchristian, it's against the, the First Amendment, it's, it's so on. So we've got to have some, and I've tangled with a lot of lawyers on this, and very few people have really thought, I think, anything like enough about it. How do you distinguish a sin from a crime? What criteria do we use to distinguish sins from crimes? All sorts of things we want to believe are sins, but we don't at all want to make pride a crime. How to bring the whole justice system to a grinding halt. (laughs) Bring all of us uh, to a grinding halt. Uh, I'm just, that's just an absurd thing, but, 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 but we need to then go on, and I think, let me just throw out a very, very quick thing that's almost flippant, but, but it's, it's a way to start. What if we, I want some theological logic behind that distinction between sins and crimes, and what if we say, if we look for moral lo- rules that are connected to creation and that are there before the fall, as opposed to moral rules that are created in, in redemption into a sinful in a fallen world, which are for the redeemed. Okay, So I would look at the value of human life before the fall, marriage, truth-telling, caring for, for the environment, and since there's work involved, you've got to have econ- economics too. Those are all the, the things that we ought to have laws about. Things that's fair game, and we should argue not with Bible verses, but for the utility and practicality and service to the common good of any law we would want in those things. We shouldn't be throwing Bible verses, unless, I mean, if everybody believes the Bible that we're talking to, fine, but in, 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 in uh, a pluralistic society, we've got to show that, that the moral laws that we want enco- encoded in the law are for the common good of everybody. Uh, we may believe them because we believe they're. Or, or, it came from creation, but but, but uh, we need to figure out a way of of our, our, a rhetoric that makes them sensible to everybody. Right. And, and just, as and a final comment, I think I was just saying like the the opposite problem of seeing kind of a, a, a hypocritical, hypocritical kind of deistic view causes younger people more not to try to engage more Christian laws, but withdraw together. Yep. Um, and I, I think and that's kind of the tension point uh, is, you know, if, if, this, if, if these more of these kind of deistic, kind of moral, but, but not quite Christian 
atmosphere is going to stand that I, I don't have the stomach for it. It's easier to withdraw politically altogether. And I think that's the struggle. Well, it's got to be, though. It's got to be uh, very messy. We've got to be prepared for something messy and not something crisp and clean and, and working out beautifully. Uh, and, and I think we've got to, uh, again, we've got to work with all sorts of people. It'll be ha whatever happens, we'll be compromising. But, but uh, I, I, I'm very nervous about restoring Christian America. I mean, I, 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 America never was a Christian organization in, in the sense of a creedal. Never, it was miles of that. We completely violate the, the First Amendment if we think of that. And, but I think we need to disengage with those ideas to have credibility with the, the non-Christian world. But, but the way, I mean, for example, in, in, in England some years ago, there was a Christian group there called, uh, in Cambridge, called the Jubilee, uh, I forget what it's called, uh, but an economist runs it. But they decided we want to actually save some laws about keeping shops closed on Sundays. Okay, uh, their, their, their concern was multi. It had many, but the, the only one they talked about and, and set television programs and stuff on this were advertisements saying, you are going to crush the small store owners who will be put out of business by the, the big stores outside of town who have enough money to pay someone to, be, uh, uh, to, 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 to keep it going on Sundays, as opposed to the, the mom and pop stores, who, and they have to take a day off in the week. And, and they framed the whole thing as fairness to the small shopkeepers and the old people whose only place to shop was people who were within walking distance, with stores that were in walking distance. And that's the way they framed it. Didn't quote the Bible, nothing about the Sabbath, but they carried it. Uh, it I think it's gone back eventually now, but it's, that, that to me is a good example of Christians working in a, in a, in a system. It, we, it's a de democracy. Lots of people don't agree with this. We've got to make it believable to them in terms that they can connect with. So I think if we did that, we would be much better off. As over against taking, looking at the ethic, what I would call the ethics of redemption and trying to push those into law, like church, church membership, church attendance, baptism. This is the, the Mass Bay Colony in the 17th century. Uh, and, and it's a disaster. And, and, and we, we force, I mean, I, trying to have, require or, or even fight for prayer in public schools, I, I'm not for that. I mean, why would we want people who aren't believers at all to do some sort of mumbling and jumbling about uh, that's called a prayer uh, and, and, uh, and, and get everybody ticked off along the way because they don't want to, they feel that's an invasion. So uh, keeping ethics of redemption out of the picture uh, and not having nothing to do with the, with the coercive power of the law, I think is worth important. But we need to say... That's, our, that's based on our theology. That's not based on our political weakness, that we're unable to do more than that. It needs to be based on our principles, uh, and we go from there. So I'm sorry to go on for a long. Yes? Healthcare. Uh, uh, would you comment on... Yeah, I hope that isn't all, to your, all, to, <laughs> all there is to your question. No, but uh, you, you, you sort of breeze past it with a yep. hint of oral. Yes and no. I mean, I, I think it ought to be in our interest that everybody in this country has as good health care as is possible. How we go about that, I'm not going to speak because I don't know enough about how it works. Maybe we have some people here who can say more, but it's, it's a, it, that's, that's way beyond my to know how that works. But I think that needs to be a real concern uh, that, that, it's the, that everybody has 
as good health care as we can make, as we can, as we can do. And, and I mean, some of the things that we, I, we, as I said, we've been going to this African American church for 25 years, and some of the situations people run into, uh, who are hardworking people, are just awful in terms of the health care that's available to them, and what they can afford, and what paying bills does to them. I mean, I don't know. We we need to see. These people have faces and, and uh, are, are in the in the present system in in uh, uh, in situations that would bug the prophets. Okay, does it bug us or not? Who knows? We'll wait and see. <laughs> yeah. Yes. How do like people are? Right, how do you help them see political things clearly? Because in the past election. Like there was like a certain thing, like even in local movement, you don't vote for certain candidates, you almost feel guilty. Yeah. How do you help them see like work through that? Well, I I just try and get them to untangle themselves from that moral yeah. demand. I mean, I don't like it either way. I mean, uh, many in many Christian circles, they have a hard time seeing how you could be possibly a Christian and not a Republican. In our church, which is an African-American church, uh, they would be likely to say, how can you possibly be a Christian and a Republican? And there are very moral, real moral issues both ways. Uh, I think we need to step back and say, I'm not going to dance to your tune. I'm not going to just be forced into one thing or another. I'm going to think it through, pray like mad, think it through as best we can, educate ourselves as best we can. And... and, um, and, and not give up cynically about the whole system. That's the, that's the uh, the alternative. It's just useless. It's just people screaming at each other. Uh, forget it. Punt. And and, and uh, <laughs> uh, I just think that's that's a mistake too. It's hard. It's very difficult. Uh, but but uh, yeah. It, and and there'll be plenty of reasons for cynicism in the next couple of years. My is my is my thought. Yeah. Well, that we need to say that is that is up a creek. That's yeah. really that's really just not. Uh, uh, no, no one has the right to tell us that. And, and and I think some sometimes the people who do tell us that are not just a little off to tell me what to do, but are really really wrong uh, in in, uh, in in priorities. So I will tell you who to vote for. Maybe when the time comes. Maybe when the time comes. No. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. Behind you. Yeah. You. Yes, you. I, you know, I don't have something I trust, and I say, okay, this is what. Um, I wish I did. There's, there'd be a lot of things out there. Yeah, that this, I've just been cobbling things together. Um, yeah, I really don't have. I'm, let me have your let me have your email address, okay? And, and uh, I'll because because I know all sorts of books where I have a chapter that I really like. <laughs> And, and uh, 
uh, not something I say, okay, this is a good perspective. Um, Oz Guinness is always worth reading. Do you know Oz Guinness? Uh, he's got a certain angle that I think is, is, is helpful. Um, but give me your email address and I'll, I'll give you something. You're it? Yes. Yeah, I just, it's sort of a comment. I think uh, for those of us who find ourselves in a very polarized world where that sort of sometimes coincides with a church or a church denomination, yeah. what we really, and, and our tendency to want to belong to one tribe or another, our need to belong, yeah. we really need to create spaces where we all belong in that, as she said, distance, where we won't agree with every side. Yeah. We need, I think a lot of us need support and staying in the middle. Absolutely. Um, and and um, I, I mean, uh, for me personally, I don't have that where I live. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. With the, the, the loss of the middle ground, uh, and so that neither side needs to appeal to a people in the middle and be reasonable. All you need to do is get your your wing mad enough and afraid enough, and they'll turn out and vote. Would it and, and the church to create that space? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Just a little bit further than that, and picking up on one of your points about the package is not buying into a full package. I can switch that word to label, uh, not not buying into full labels. Yeah. Um, I, I think, for instance, particularly uh, conservative and liberal, are terms that have less meaning than they ever had before. Yeah. Uh, particularly when conservatives run up budget deficits and, and yeah. a liberal a liberal president uh, balanced the budget a couple of decades ago. So I yeah. there are all kinds of reasons to yeah. say these labels really just yeah. don't mean yeah. much anymore. And if we're able to, sh- to shed those labels and simply have discussions about ideas, yeah. it might be a step in the direction. Yeah. Totally, they have tremendous... The trouble is they have tremendous psychological resonance, these labels, as, as inaccurate as they, as they are. Yeah. And, and uh, yes? And, and maybe in this context, the term evangelical by so many people in the United States now is, is considered a political term. Yeah. Um, and that's a real problem. Um, and so I think we use the term evangelical potentially at some apologetic or evangelistic risk um, and, and relational risk as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's, it's, um, I think it's really, and, and you, you wonder, do I want to use it of myself? Uh, and, with certain, and, and with certain people, I don't. Right. Uh, others, I, whatever. Uh, but that's, it's, that's, I'm, I'm, it, it, that's a hard word to give up on. It is, you know, and, and to say this is this word is too far gone yeah. for me to be to, to identify with it. So I don't, I, in a sense, I don't want to give up on it without a fight. To, you know, it was to pull the word back yeah. and to have it yeah. less identified politically, and 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 uh, to and have it more mean something theologically and and spiritually. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there's, there's young people being so disenchanted. At our age, we're also very disenchanted. Here, here. And when it gets right down to the bank of the river and it's the day you have to vote, yeah. is it better to say whichever you think is the lesser of two evils when you see them both as evil? Mm-hmm. Or is it better just to give up and say, I can't vote for you one because I see them both as evil? Mm-hmm. I mean, what is the. That's, that's hard, isn't it? Because, uh, I mean, <laughs> our Republican. Go- 
what is it? No, I guess uh, I, I, I know a, a bunch of people in that situation who, in this last election, voted for Mitt Romney. <laughs> You've got to put a name on the de- on the ballot. You know, you voted for president. Uh, and that's basically to not vote, I guess. But 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 uh, it, it's it's. Uh, I think I would want to vote because we we. The question is, is we live in a fallen world. We need to admit that it's a fallen world. We not to pretend that, it's, that it ought to be a world where I can always stand behind one. I mean, sure, it ought to be, but it's not. And it may not be, get that way anytime soon. Uh, so I think I, I think I think I would vote for the lesser of evils. I, I did last, myself last time, and, and in my own mind. And, and, uh, but but, but uh, not without a struggle. Not without a struggle. Uh, yes, the, the, the political problems are not just for the young. Yes. I feel like I'm very much in sympathy with your perspective of like noncommittal, even that I don't want to import Jesus language into the government. Know, I kept having this fucking historical Baptist perspective on the distinction between church and state. But the thing I keep running up against people talking about this, and not to use a scare word, but more theonomic brothers, is that you, you use the language of like, we need to advocate for the good life. Right, the common the good. Yeah, common good. Yep. I don't have a vision of the common good that is compatible with Bruce Jenner's. And there's a metaphysic dependency that creates my vision of the, of the good life. So some of these brothers would say things like, maybe we just need one line, Jesus is Lord in the Constitution. We're not going to impose that worship upon you, but like that's the starting point. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not willing to go there, but I am left going... How do we have a consensus on the good life if there's not someone who reveals which vision is superior? That's right. I, but I don't, think, I don't think you possibly can have an agreed on with Bruce Jenner. You're not going to have a, a compromised position. You, you, what you've got to do is to be persuasive to the, to the whole voting body that what you believe is for the common good and actually good for him whether he likes it or not her like whoever she is he she is <laughs> uh, uh, and, and because if we believe things are rooted in creation they are good for the people even who don't want them that way who don't think it's for their good we think we know better what's their good uh, but we need to be best at persuading the, the, the mass of the voters that, that what we say is good for them and good for the whole body politic uh, and that's a huge challenge, but that's a democracy. You know? And, and I, I agree with you, I think, if you disagree with, we can't just have Jesus as Lord and stuff. That's, that becomes a totally different ball game from uh, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and everything. Uh, and I think it would be a terrible thing for Christians to sort of, yes, okay, as if that's a fantastic victory. We have, you know, I think we'd just make a lot of enemies and, and make a, a whole... A whole uh, Confidence shift into into a wrong direction. So that if we have a symbolic victory and make them swallow the fact of Jesus is Lord, then we've won something. I think we've just ticked off a lot of people, probably sabotaged our future uh, influence. But, but we've got to just be better at persuasion. We need to uh, do a lot of work and get people to agree with us and persuade them why why, it, why it's the right thing to do. Um, yeah, I'm making us all late for lunch. Um, so we probably, let's maybe we just pray together as we as we leave. Father God, we just are, are really over our heads as we think of where our country is, 
where it needs to be, where we'd like to see it become what is going on around us. Lord God, help us. Have mercy on us, we pray. Have mercy on us individually. Have mercy on us as a nation. Have mercy on us as individual states and cities and towns. Lord God, look on us with your mercy and minister to us. Lead us. Make us humble and thoughtful and wise. And we also, Lord, pray for our leaders now, our president, the vice president, the leaders in, in both houses of Congress, the court. Lord God, we pray for your hand to be on them, to, to bring wisdom, to bring humility, to bring commitment to justice. We ask for your help in this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreeconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.